Welcome to Present Value. My name is Paul Whitco, and I'll be serving as your host for this special edition episode of Present Value. Like many of you, the Present Value team has been adjusting our behavior and staying tuned to the continuously evolving COVID-19 pandemic. Every few hours, it seems, there is a new opinion, a new suggestion, a new regulation, or a new update on what this pandemic means for our society, our culture, our health, and our economy. As many of us find ourselves with new routines, we at Present Value continue to be committed to providing content that is relevant, timely, and useful to you, our listeners. This week, we spoke to some of Cornell University's top minds, including three past Present Value guests, and asked them to share their thoughts and reactions surrounding this global crisis and the impact it will leave on the world. For this special episode, we have invited five esteemed guests to join us and share their thoughts and expertise. Dean Andrew Caroli, Dean Lynn Wooten, Professors Lee Chen, Vishal Gar, and Caitlin Woolley weigh in on topics including the effect of COVID-19 on financial markets, crisis leadership, supply chain disruptions and retail operations, as well as personal motivation amidst social distancing. Our conversations also look ahead to how the various aspects of the coronavirus pandemic will impact our future. On behalf of the Present Value team, I hope you enjoy this special edition episode, and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at Present Value Pod. In our first segment, Present Value producer Greg Wool sits down with Andrew Caroli, the Deputy Dean and College Dean for Academic Affairs at the Cornell S.C. Johnson College of Business. He is a professor of finance and holder of the Harold Bierman Jr. Distinguished Professorship in the college's Johnson Graduate School of Management. He is also a professor of economics in Cornell's College of Arts and Sciences. Dean Caroli is a previous guest on the Present Value podcast and is a scholar in the area of investment management with a specialization in the study of international financial markets. Dean Caroli spoke with Greg about the impact of COVID-19 on consumer demand, supply chains, and the way market behavior itself often spreads much like a virus. Dean Caroli, welcome to Present Value. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Greg. To begin, can you describe the present reaction of global financial markets to the COVID-19 pandemic? I don't know if anybody can fully describe it, but I think this is this is the way I would characterize it, Greg. I think what we've endured here is an unexpected real economic shock. It comes from two sources, both a supply shock, which is really talking about the production process for goods and services through businesses, the supply chain, the integrated supply chains around the world, businesses to businesses, ultimately leading to consumer-facing goods and services, to what we also call a second real shock, which is on the demand side. Obviously, people's incomes currently and prospectively have been adversely impacted, and their purchasing power is likely to be impacted. And as a result, Both of these things are feeding on each other to lead to many of these really, really painful outcomes that we're seeing in the immediate aftermath of the escalation of this COVID-19 crisis. That's about goods and services, what we call the real side of the economy. The financial side of the economy is basically almost like a mirror being held up 
to the real side. It's reflecting back what it is seeing there. We're talking about financial assets that are claims against the current and prospective future cash flows that are associated with these businesses, for example. And the claimants are looking at these future sales growth opportunities, these future profits and the cash flows associated with them that on which they would have some claim and saying, wow, these are diminished. And that's why we're seeing this negative financial shock, this big downdraft. I think what's happening is as much as it is about this sort of revaluation of the underlying financial claims against the cash flows that stem from these real assets, it is actually the magnitude is such of this revaluation because the magnitude of the real shock is so large that we're actually putting stressors on the financial system. It's like, if you think about it almost from an engineering perspective, the pipes and the plumbing of the system is almost shaking at the intensity and the magnitudes there. So where this is revealing itself, the shock or the, the, I'm going to call it dislocation pressures on the system comes in the form of a lot of issues to do with the underlying liquidity and trading because it's such a one-sided thing where you see, you know, with the big downdrafts, a lot of selling pressure. And then like what you've seen for the last three and a half days is a lot of upward buying pressure that is impeding the normal liquid functioning of the markets for different people trading, buying and selling things. We're seeing the stressors involved in sort of big economic pronouncements of important decision makers, whether it's Congress that's trying to affect some sort of fiscal policy stimulus program, or as interesting, the people that are in charge of central banks and monetary policy authorities around the world trying to figure out what tools they have to affect policy in this sort of highly unstable situation that's creating all these stressors. They want it to be well-functioning, and the dislocation is making their jobs harder as well. So all of that is creating a lot of uncertainty, and with uncertainty around these real and financial shocks comes undoubtedly a lot of volatility. That's my take on where we are, sort of a high-level take on it. Very, very concise and, and fascinating, and we'll all be very curious to see how it shakes out. Now, you've been studying international markets for some time and in some ways have identified the ways that financial crises act like viruses. Would you kindly walk our listeners through the approach to evaluating contagion in financial markets from your 2003 article, A New Approach to Measuring Financial Contagion? Thanks, Greg. I really appreciate that because this is something that's been a passion of mine for many, many years. Financial contagion is something that we were talking about almost 20 years ago, measuring financial contagion, particularly international financial contagion. I should have added earlier that another signature of what we're seeing right now is the fact that these pressures on the systems are not just in stocks. My, my answer kind of hinted that it's all about the stock market, right? But it actually isn't. What we're seeing is these pressures across the entire financial system from the credit markets perspective in terms of interest rates. I alluded to that with this talk about central banks, but also currency markets. There are big players in that world as well, as well as in the commodity space. We've heard a lot about what Russia and the Middle East is doing with respect to oil prices. 
and so on. So what we're seeing is it's spilling over across asset classes and it's definitely global in scope. And that brings me to the contagion stuff. So ironically enough, what we were doing 20 years ago was talking about the fallout and aftermath of the Asian financial crisis. And expert watchers, this is in 1998-99, it was related to the Russian default crisis that occurred right about that time, and also the failure of a major global mandated hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management, LTCM. This is what we were talking about back in the early 2000s was the sort of the fallout from all of that. And I remember people talking about the fact that the origins of this Asian financial crisis was in Asia. We often talked about it as the Asian flu. And that's what prompted my colleagues and I to think about this in a kind of an out-of-the-box way at the time. We actually went and did a deep dive into biostatistics and the world of epidemiology research to try and get a sense of how they model the propagation of viruses empirically with data, data data-driven models to examine this, to see if there was any potential applicability for financial markets. And that's what we tried to operationalize. I won't go into the wonkiness of the modeling process, but it was using multinomial logics. And what we were looking at is in an epidemic or pandemic kind of situation, you see lots of waves of people getting sick at the same time. What we were trying to do is think about understanding the Asian financial crisis from how those markets were falling, crashing around about the same time. We coined the term co-crashing. Imagine waves of markets within the Asian sphere crashing at the same time. And what we were trying to do is understand the predeterminants or fundamental factors that could be used to try to predict the event of and the intensity of those types of co-crashing waves. So we called this a new approach to modeling international financial contagion. But the coolest part of that research was that what we tried to do is once we identified or defined and maybe measured and tried to understand the predeterminants of these waves of co-crashing or contagious events in Asia, the coolest part of that research was when we tried to understand how these waves might transcend and spill over globally to the US or to Europe and intensify crashing or co-crashing behaviors across continents. That's what that research originally did. And it was a nice opening gambit in terms of an out-of-the-box approach to measuring this stuff. And then a lot of scholars came along afterwards and improved upon what we did. But the irony in this current situation is that the fact that the spark for this real and financial shock that we're experiencing right now happens to have been a flu-like virus called COVID-19, it makes me think about the reasons why we did that research way back when we were talking about the Asian flu, the Asian financial crisis as a form of a virus propagating and contagiously around markets. So it makes me think about that. I would say if I were to think about how to sort of modernize some of that early thinking that we and early modeling that we did, were we to be doing it right now, I, I would say with the passage of 20 plus years time, we've seen a lot more expansion of financial globalization in that past 20 years. I mean, if you just look at the sheer volume of financial flows that have been going through the pipes of the international financial system, the volume is multiple times more intense than it was even back then. So 
if we were to do this kind of modeling right now, my guess would be, and I think people are feeling and watching it right now, is that the magnitude of those type of contagious like spillovers that we're seeing across asset classes and across markets that are like contagion like spillovers, the magnitudes are even greater than we were trying to think about way back then. And I would say another really intriguing part of this is that the speed or acceleration with which that co-crashing activity is taking place, let alone spilling over across the world, it's just that much more compressed now than it was even 20, 22 years ago when we were talking about those earlier crises events. My question would be, you spoke about studying the fundamental drivers or inputs of those waves, and you mentioned magnitude and speed as being two of those drivers that seem to have changed over time. How have you seen the impact of those drivers changing, affecting those waves of contagion, specifically in the 2008-2009 financial crisis and in what we're experiencing today? Well, that's right. Excellent question. I'm glad you brought up the global financial crisis from 10 years ago. Its origins are very different, but the mechanics of how we saw that truly take on a global footprint in terms of its propagation, the propagation mechanism is truly global, has very, very strong similarities with what we saw in the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s, and certainly what we're seeing now. But thanks for prompting me, because I really do think that even 10 years ago, relative to the 10 years before that, there is a compression of time in terms of the hyperspeed with which these spillovers are taking place. And it's been compressed yet again now 10 years later than that. That's the way I would get our listeners to think about this, is the acceleration by which we are seeing this contagion-like spillover activity in terms of the financial shock propagation mechanism is really what's, I think, special and different now. I think your question also asked about the predeterminants, right? So I haven't done the modeling. We're just flying in real time now. We can't, we can't possibly, right? It's early days. But I can see how people might take some of those early models and try to apply it to today. And what they might see is the sensitivity, forget about the speed now, just the magnitudes the magnitudes of those co-crashing mechanisms and how they spill over, the magnitudes or the sensitivity with which those things happen, I'm guessing have probably redoubled as well. So for a given, for example, think about it in terms of one of the predetermines, which would be a large decrease in real economic growth. The consequence of an adverse downward shock in real economic growth for one of these co-crashing types of events that sensitivity measure might be even double what we were measuring 20 years ago. Does that make sense? And so my guess is the spillovers from one region to the next, that sensitivity measure is also doubled yet again. Now, whether that's something that is real or whether it relates now to this sort of riff I offered you about dislocation, the stressors on the financial system, right? There's flows. Flow intensity is definitely part of it. And there's the pipes and the infrastructure and the stressors on the system. I wonder if that dislocation that I'm describing there is part of the reason why we're seeing this amplification of the effects. 
that's a hypothesis. It's a question I'm asking. I don't know the answer to that. We won't for a while. But that's what I'm wondering that what we're seeing. At least you're getting a sense of how I think about this stuff. It reminds me of the mental model of the butterfly effect. But in this case, the butterfly has grown to gargantuan proportions and the universe in which it's affecting things has shrunk at the same time. And so one small impact is now a large impact and the waves are correspondingly larger as well. The waves are more intense in magnitude and they happen with greater acceleration because of that, the equivalent of that butterfly effect, the, the amplification of the mechanisms because the stressors are so great on the system. Quite fascinating. So moving on to the future, as, as we said, it's early days and the scope of this pandemic and the corresponding economic reaction are changing, it seems, hourly. I'm curious even so what you may offer as a prediction of what recovery might look like when it begins and how that recovery might compare to that which we experienced coming out of the GFC 12 years ago. Right. Well, what happened 10 years ago? There's going to be a little bit of editorializing here, okay? So you got to give me a little bit of room to do something like that. But one of the things that we learned about coming out of the GFC, the global financial crisis 10 years ago, was that the response of important decision makers in major industrialized countries and not just, was that it was much less forceful than it should have been. And it made the length of the path of recovery a lot slower. And I'm talking about the real side now, because fiscal policy has a big impact on the real side. It just made the path out of the deep crisis that we experienced 10 years ago that much slower. And that was notwithstanding the fact that authorities, for example, in terms of monetary policy, the central banks around the world and the financial system itself was more, I would say, relatively more adept at responding to the global financial crisis. What I would also say, in addition to the slowness of the reaction to the shock, the depth of the shock, was that it was less than ideal in terms of coordination across countries that I don't think we fully understood the global nature of it and that it was really important for fiscal authorities, the Congresses and the parliaments of the world to actually act more impactfully in a coordinated way. The financial monetary authorities through the Financial Stability Board and a lot of things that were created in and around the crisis understood the importance of working together. The central bank, they understood the importance of that because of the integrated nature of the financial system. Fast forward to today, what makes me feel more optimistic is that I think that with the events of this week in Washington, we saw a very forceful action. I'm not saying $2.2 trillion of the fiscal stimulus policy is enough to address the dimension of the real shock, the supply and demand shock that I was talking about off the top. But it's a lot more forceful than I think we saw 10 years ago. And I see a lot more coordination among the G7 and the G20s in terms of their open lines of communications from the fiscal policy side. The central banks are already well accustomed to working together. They've opened up the swap lines to liquefy the markets, right? Remember I talked about the stressors on the system? What the central bank authorities have done is they've responded to really open up and coordinate and share the pressures, for example, you know, a lot of people rushing into dollars, dollar-denominated assets as a sort of a safe haven. A lot of central banks are short. 
far short of what they need to accommodate the demands for that safe haven retreat. And so central bank authorities are working together in a very coordinated manner to make that happen. You hear a lot of news about that. But I, I would say on the fiscal side, it makes me feel more optimistic that our path to recovery may not be as slow as it was 10 years ago, because I think we learned a lot of lessons from it in terms of working together across parliaments and congresses around the world. Does that make sense? It does. And, and speaking as someone who graduated from undergrad in 2010, and I'm halfway through an MBA in 2020, I'm very glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's a lot of reasons to be concerned about the, the news that we see every day. And I don't want to take anything away from that. But I, I do want to make sure that we also emphasize some of the silver linings of things that we're seeing. And I, th I think decision makers have learned things from 10 years ago. At least I look for some of these encouraging signs. I hope others do too. Absolutely. Well, Dean Caroli, before we go, I know I'm curious, and I'm sure our listeners are, how are you coping with the quarantine measures? What's something that you've learned while in relative isolation? I've learned more about Zoom and Zoom technology than I ever dreamed I would, <laughs> Greg. I've also learned that how incredibly agile my colleagues are to the shift that we've experienced as a college, a business, and a school, the Graduate School of Management, the Johnson Graduate School of Management to shifting to online, given the, the magnitude of the shift of behaviors that we're asking people to do, it's heartening to see the agility with which people are ready to make those kinds of changes. Like, look, we're doing a podcast here via Zoom right now, and it's great. I'm enjoying it. I love this kind of interaction. I see lots of people interacting actively through fora they weren't using before, and it, it makes me smile. It's good. It's really important to keep contact with family using all of this technology too, now more than ever before. That's the hardest part is just making sure that your family is connected and talking, your friends, keeping in touch with them. We spent a lot of time, my wife and I, in our little quarantine setting here, reaching out to friends and family and just keeping connected. That seems to be really important. Absolutely. Well, Andrew Caroli, thank you so much for appearing on Present Value. Thank you for having me, Greg. All the best to you. Stay healthy. You as well. Everybody. One interesting aspect of this crisis is the way it changes our perspective on complex systems we often take for granted. Shortages in regular goods such as toilet paper and hand sanitizer are driving consumer awareness of the factories, warehouses, and retail operations that bring items from all over the globe into our homes. To explore more deeply the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on supply chains and retail operations, I spoke with Professor Lee Chen and Professor Vishal Gar. Professor Chen is an Associate Professor of Operations, Technology, and Information Management at the SC Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. Professor Gar is the Emerson Professor of Manufacturing Management and an Associate Professor of Operations, Technology, and Information Management at the Johnson School. Professor Chen, Professor Gar, thank you very much for joining us today for this special edition episode of Present Value. It's great to have you both here. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Paul, for having us. Professor Chen, I wanted to start with a question for you. We have heard a lot about supply chains being disrupted as a result of this global pandemic. This is evidenced by empty shelves for some of our household staples. Fruits, vegetables, meats, and strangely enough, toilet paper. 
to level set for our listeners, what are the key elements of a supply chain and which of those are being most disrupted? This is a very good question. People often talk about key elements of supply chain as three flows, the material flow, information flow, and financial flow. But there are two additionally equally important elements, if not more. They are people and the ecosystem. You need people to run production in a factory. You need people to manage warehouses and the retail stores. And you need people to move the raw materials and the finished goods along the supply chain. The ecosystem where a supply chain operates is also important. You need to know your competition government regulation, as well as your environmental and the social impact. So the supply chain disruption caused by COVID-19 starts from the people element. Because of the pandemic mitigation measure of social distancing we are all practicing now, the workforce needed for running factories, warehouses, retail stores has all been disrupted. This in turn disrupts the material flow moving along the supply chains. Furthermore, as we just said, the sudden surge of demands for some essential household goods such as toilet papers and also the sudden demand jobs of other non-essential products have created a significant information flow distortion along the supply chain. And this is a known phenomenon known as the bullwhip effect where a small change of demand at consumer level may create a huge demand fluctuations at the upstream of a supply chain. And such demand distortion will inevitably lead to disruption in the financial flow of a supply chain as well. You will see your customers delay their invoice payments and you probably will also have to delay your own payments to your suppliers too. These are all short-term effects caused by the pandemic but there could also be longer-term effects on the ecosystem. There could be changes in competition, government regulation, or global trades in foreseeable future as a result of this pandemic crisis. So if you are running a supply chain, you may also have to rethink, redesign your supply chain to adapt to the new changes. Great. So I will direct this next question primarily to Professor Gar. As Professor Chen mentioned, a common phenomenon in supply chain theory is known as the bullwhip effect, where a change in consumer demand results in an amplified impact throughout the supply chain. Along these lines, can you describe some of the challenges that companies are likely to face in managing their response to this pandemic? Yes, definitely, Paul. The bullwhip effect is an important phenomenon. And unfortunately for all of us, it plays out in a very significant way when there is a disruption as large as the COVID-19 pandemic. I like to think of it as driving a car, looking in the rearview mirror. Usually we have a forecast and we are planning our supply chain activities, making decisions in different companies involved in the supply chain, like retailers and manufacturers or logistics firms, based on those forecasts and those plans. But now all forecasts have become useless. So in a way, we are seeing completely new information unfold day by day and reacting to that information. What makes it worse is that that information that we are seeing today is actually from several days old because the tests that are being done today are reflecting how many people have already gotten infected. And so 
this incubation period of the tests, the inability to forecast how fast the pandemic will rise, and the fact that it's all exponential, right? Normally, we think of time as linear. If I don't do something today, postpone it to tomorrow, I lose a day. But here, it could be a factor of two, that any day saved may save the number of people affected by thousands or hundreds of thousands. So our mind usually does not work in in ways that we can understand exponential information effectively. We think linearly. So for all of these reasons, the bullwhip effect nowadays is actually much worse than it normally is. So far, we are seeing the downside of it, which is the scarcity being created. As Professor Chen said, gradually the scarcity will go upstream in the supply chain when manufacturers will not see orders from retailers come in during February, March, etc. They will also start to see their supplies get disrupted because of the freeze on travel and the closure of factories all over the world. So planning all of those things is going to take companies time. You're driving looking in the rear view mirror and your mirror is also foggy. So <laughs> I think the, the more information we can have, the more we can speed up our testing, increase capacities in hospitals, etc. That will help us clear up our foggy rear view mirrors and navigate this better, both from a health point of view and from a supply chain point of view. Yeah, Professor Chen. Yes, I want to add on to Professor Gao's comments. So we are living in a natural disaster, and this is a once-in-a-lifetime natural disaster. It's very much unlike the hurricanes we have been experiencing every year. And as Professor Gao said, so we have to make forecasts for our daily life and the running supply chains. But because this is a a a once-in-a-lifetime event, and we don't have a lot of historical data to work with, We only have a very limited data as the pandemic unfolds. And therefore, for companies up and down the supply chain, I believe the best way for them to respond is to collaborate with their customers and the vendors working together, sharing information and coordinating their response efforts collectively. And as we work together, we can weather through this crisis together. And so I believe things will become better. It's a great reason for optimism. Professor Gar, one of your primary areas of research is in retail operations. And we have seen many stores change how they serve their customers through mobile pickup options, contactless delivery services, and dedicated store hours for at-risk population segments. To what extent do you think this trend will persist into the future after the coronavirus pandemic? Or will customers be excited to simply get back to walking around a retail store? It is actually amazing and inspiring to see how our retail stores are responding to this pandemic. I think it's just fascinating and and amazing to watch where supermarket workers have become emergency response workers. Pharmaceutical workers have also become that. And many retailers and restaurants are changing on the fly to being able to deliver things online and provide curbside delivery, provide home delivery options. So I think broadly, there are maybe two or three things to think about here. 
One is that different retailers are getting affected in different ways. So retailers that sell staple products, necessity items, emergency use items are thrust into the limelight and they are not seeing a shortfall in revenue, but they are seeing an increase in risk. And I would include a few other retailers in this category, some that we don't even think of normally. So for example, as people are spending more time at home, the sales of hobby toys, board games, computer games, those things are also going up in the process. Even home furnishings, as people find they need new stuff and which they have been neglecting and they're they're seeing things at home that they can improve. On the other hand, there are retailers that are seeing disruption of demand. Many restaurants are shut down. Stores that sell products for events are shut down temporarily. Stores that cater to small and medium-sized enterprises, even stores like Staples and Office Depot, will suffer some, some demand. Stores that sell clothing, discretionary purchase items, things that can be postponed. So you see a difference in effect. Some retailers don't see a difference in revenue or maybe see an, a temporary increase in revenue because of the scarcity effect, whereas other stores see a decline in revenue. So I think that's one side that stores are getting affected in different ways. The second side is, as you mentioned, stores are moving online. So those who are online already online benefit. Those who are not yet online are trying to set up their online shop as quickly as possible. So that's the second effect. And the third effect is, as you said, how many people will make this a permanent change in their shopping habits? What I have seen anecdotally from following news reports is that many retailers are seeing people come into their online store for the very first time. People are getting Amazon Prime memberships when they haven't had one before. I think many of these people will go back to brick and mortar, but will also continue shopping online. So the best thing for retailers to do is to continue investing in online and try to create more of a omni-channel or multi-channel experience for their customers because the virus makes it clear that it's here to stay. Great. Thank you. Professor Chen, you have had a firsthand experience in the epicenter of this crisis, having spent the early part of this year in Wuhan. My question to you is, whether it's around the world or here in the U.S., can you talk about the potential opportunities and innovations that may come out of this ongoing crisis? Sure. So I always said to my students, so when there's a crisis, there's also opportunity. Taking the example of the 2008 financial crisis, so we have seen many innovative supply chain finance schemes emerged after the crisis. And I believe the current COVID-19 crisis is no different. There will be new opportunities and innovations emerging from this crisis. For example, innovations in factory automation, driverless transportation. I think these technologies will make our supply chain less dependent on people. And there will also be innovations in healthcare industry, such as telehealth, telemedicine. And lastly, I believe if we all collectively think together about the new ways to live and work, and just like Professor Gao said, People may move online and do shopping, and so they probably will retain some of the habits you know, formed during this social distancing period. 
And so that's great. But also we need to think about now how we can make the world a more environmentally sustainable and more socially responsible place to live. Yeah, I would like to add to that. I share the enthusiasm that Professor Chen is expressing about the future when we get out of this uh, present crisis. The, the crisis certainly is extremely painful, especially for all of those people who are laid off or who suffer direct effects, God forbid, of this pandemic. But we are also going through a tremendous social experiment at this time all over the world with this social distancing. And it's really hard to predict how this will change the businesses for tomorrow. There will probably be many more online communities arising, many new online businesses that come about. I think that once we get out of this, I hope it's a short-lived crisis. That will be something interesting to watch. Another one there is that people who have been stuck at home, not shopping much, not going out to restaurants, will probably go out and there might be a mini shopping boom that follows COVID-19 especially if the government keeps on shoring up the economy. So I hope all of those businesses that are right now under tremendous pressure figure out how to conserve cash and survive this temporary downturn so that when they come out, they come out ahead. So I want to add a few more comments here. So I think you never underestimate people's resilience during and after a crisis. And just like we had yesterday, we have the first ever virtual stage social. That's uh, evidence of how we as students and faculty are resilient to the crisis you know, we have been experiencing now. And so I have no doubt you know, people will emerge you know, from this crisis stronger and smarter. And so I believe the world will be a better place for sure tomorrow. Yeah, that's some really great perspective and some positivity when we really need it. We can only hope that sooner rather than later. Well, Professor Chen, Professor Gar, it was a pleasure having you both on the episode today. Hopefully next time we chat, it will be in person. Thanks again for coming on with us. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having us. Thank you. To discuss the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on organizations and management, Present Value producer Maria Castex spoke with Lynn Wooten, the David J. Nolan Dean and Professor of Management and Organizations at Cornell University's Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management. In an earlier episode of Present Value, Dean Wooten spoke with producer James Feld about her research in crisis leadership. Today, Maria follows up with Dean Wooten on that conversation, discussing crisis leadership competencies, the importance of cultural context, and the reimagination of a new normal. Dean Wooten, thank you so much for joining us again on Present Value. Thank you for having me, Maria. So to start off the conversation, I wanted to make sure that we provided our listeners with a little bit of background. And your research focuses on crisis leadership, which includes seven different competencies that leaders must have to successfully navigate a crisis. So to start off, can you remind our listeners what those competencies are? Yes, I can. So I've spent about a quarter of a century with my co-author, Dean Erica James, at the Emory's Business School, looking at crisis leadership competencies based on data that we've collected. And the first competency is signal detecting, the ability to perceive that a crisis is on its way. And we live in a world of normal things happening in crisis. So what does signal detection entail? Well, one, it's sense-making of your environment. You have to have the ability to look 
in the past and look in the future and understand what's happening while being at the present. And so part of sense making is scanning the environment, understanding what's happening, doing an analysis of trends in the macro environment, such as technology, the political environment, demographic trends, understanding crises that may happen because of internal stakeholders, such as employee or external stakeholders. Signal detection also involves perspective taking. Good leaders have a perspective on things in their world. And when we refer to perceptive taking, we're talking about if a crisis is going to happen and I'm going to be signal detecting, what's my theory of change? How am I going to resolve that crisis? Do I have an awareness of others? When firms and organizations and teams are too myopic, they're not good at signal detecting. And then contextual knowledge. You need to have good awareness of your industry, as I said, the macro environment, and all the firms, suppliers. So using that Porter's Five Forces model to understand buyers, suppliers, threat of substitutes, and how they may impact the crisis. So there's signal detection. The next phase is prevention and preparation. Leaders should always be preparing or preventing that next crisis. Now, this is very hard, and we've seen this with the COVID-19 crisis. When you look at some of the documents about how the top leadership in the federal government didn't want to go through the pandemic training because they were like, this is never going to happen. Part of this prevention and preparation is thinking about the best case scenario, but the worst case scenario. So it consists of scenario planning and thinking about if a crisis is going to happen, how can I prepare for it? But better yet, how can I prevent it? So issue selling, you have to convince the organization that it is a worthwhile practice because a reason why many organizations do not engage in prevention and preparation is it's taking time away from other revenue generating sources. And so issue selling for prevention and preparation are important. Organizational agility, the ability to have knowledge across business functions to have an integrative mindset. I may be the chief financial officer, but if I'm going to plan for a crisis, I need to understand marketing and human resources and supply chain management. So organizational agility across functions is important for leaders. And one that most people are surprised that we advocate for as part of the prevention and preparation conference are creativity. To think about that worst case scenario and to do that scenario planning requires you to produce new ideals. All of us can sit around and come up with scenarios, but once you have those scenarios, you have to have ideals so that you can plan for the crisis or prevent them. And so creativity is very important. The next phase is containing the crisis and then coupled with containing becomes damage control. And we've heard the word containment a lot as people say they want to contain the coronavirus now. And containing the crisis requires decision-making under pressure. You have to be, and we all live in a pressurized environment and we all want the data to make decisions, but you can't have a perfect data environment in the crisis. And so a skill set to make decisions under pressure are so important. While at the same time, um, going back to the Jerry Maguire video, they talk about show me the money. I always tell leaders, show me the data. Use that theory of change as we're doing with corona. Think about the data, 
and be quick and ethical in the decisions that you make and should make, realize that you're making pressurized decisions but doing your best. The other part of containment is not going to surprise anyone. Communicate, communicate, communicate. As I said, we've been studying crisis for 25 years and the rules of communication have changed. It used to be that news media or headline news and other things were the biggest forces of communication. Today, I think important communication is around social media, it's websites. But you almost need a two by two communication plan when you think about communication with the rows representing communication outlets such as news, social media, intranet, and then the columns representing all of the various stakeholders. How are you gonna to communicate to them? What are you gonna to communicate to them? And then the timing of it. The other thing I wanna emphasize is in this containment and damage control phase is, is that crisis leadership is more than communication. Communication is the first step, but what our research indicates is the most successful crisis leaders follow up communication with actions. The next phase is business covering. I know we're going to re return to that later on in this interview, but business covering is about promoting resiliency. The crisis will end. And the organizations and the leaders that thrive are the ones that think about how we're going to bounce back. When I'm teaching leaders about resiliency, I actually throw up and down a bouncing ball and think about how is your organization going to change? How will you reimagine your organization? Because it's not going to be the same after the crisis we're experiencing now. So being resilient is very important. While at the same time, resiliency requires you to act with integrity. I'll give you one example in the current crisis. Now, you know, some people are trying to make money off of this crisis. You see, um, one person told me that they spent $24 for a pack of toilet paper. And that's not acting with integrity. Yes, crisis can be opportunity, but ethical behavior and acting with integrity are very important. And then finally, what Dean James and I like to think of as the hallmark of our research, which most crisis leaders neglect, become learning and reflection. How do you learn from this crisis? How do you position yourself to be a better leader, a better organization? And part of it is reflection. So when I'm working with crisis leadership teams, I'm constantly thinking about the after action review. How did we handle the crisis? What did we learn from this? And how do we move forward? So that's kind of the high level of, we have articles and an entire book on it. And so that's the quick version of crisis leadership competency. Perfect. And I think it was very interesting. You, you briefly touched on the most successful sort of crisis leaders follow up on their actions. And so I'm curious, in, in your view, which leaders or organizations have you seen demonstrate a particularly strong or perhaps a weak response to the COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, and you know, being at Cornell, there are certain industries that I've been following more than others. So I've been looking at governments because this is a global crisis and you're getting to see government leadership. I also have been thinking about the hospitality industry, restaurants, because those are industries that have been hit hard and healthcare. Starting with the government in particular, I've been impressed with how Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel has been very intentional about how she has handled the crisis. Historically, she's been criticized because Angela's wanted to be one of those behind the scene leaders, that Chancellor of Germany, but it got to a point where she had to step up. 
And her crisis leadership has exemplified the importance of teamwork and relying on the expertise, in particular, her leaders in healthcare industry to make decisions to communicate. So she's one example of one I've been following. Another example I've been looking at is the Marriott CEO. And you can imagine how hospitality in the hotel industry is getting hit. And he's been good about messaging what the crisis is doing to the industry, what it means for the hotel, Marriott's change, and how they're going to be resilient and reinvent themselves after this crisis. Likewise, if any of you have noticed that the airline has been very good about communicating to its customers about the crisis and being really sensitive and leading with integrity. Who would have ever thought that the airlines created this world now where they're making sure that you can get to the travel plans that you want? They're giving you free changes on the airlines. That's an example of leading with integrity. It's surprising. Um, I've only lived in the state of New York for three years, but people have been commenting on our governor and how he's been stepping up to lead. And when you see the analysis of New York's governor's leadership, it's been given one that he has been able to balance humor, compassion, using the data to make decisions, and being courageous and calling on each of us to ensure that we do our part to contain the crisis. So those are examples of a couple of leaders that I've been studying. That's great. You mentioned briefly reinvention, and I have a question that I, I'll be jumping back to on that. But I'm curious from what I'm familiar about your work and other conversations that I've heard you have, particularly last week on the eCornell keynote webinar, it seems that a big part of your research focuses on how leaders are able to learn and apply those learnings from the crisis that, that they're experiencing quickly and widely across an organization. So I'm wondering if we can dive a little bit deeper and if you've seen any examples of that dynamic play out during the present crisis. If you think about the trajectory of how long we've been studying crisis leadership and some of the big crises that have hit in the last 25 years, there's September 11th, there's Katrina, there have been other medical crises. And the organizations that we study have really drew upon that knowledge to think about how to learn and live and thrive in the crisis. So for example, Walmart is so good and able to manage its supply chain because a lot of what it learned about crisis supply chain has come from natural disasters such as hurricanes, Katrina, and the one that hit Florida, Maria, which you're probably familiar with. And so the reason why Walmart's able to get the right products to the store and timely is every crisis, it thinks about how can we advance our information systems? What did we learn from this crisis and how can it make us a better retailer and to manage our supply chain better? So that's an example. As we're seeing people mobilize buildings, for example, New Orleans and what they learned from Katrina, and they're being agile about how they use the convention center and other resources for medical care. So that is an example there. I think the automotive industry, whether the recession of 2008 and had to learn how to be agile. And so they've been very strategic on the customer side about how they market and reposition their products. I've seen commercials where they say, we will deliver the car to your door. But what is even more impressive is the automotive firms have a excellent manufacturing capability and how they've offered to take that manufacturing capability and to reinvest it to make ventilators for this crisis. So that goes back to organizational agility 
and the manufacturing sector. Those are a couple of examples, but what I'm seeing is one is, is that organizations are drawing from the history of the last couple of decades, natural disasters, medical crisis, their organizational agility, and then applying how they can really serve their country and the world to help us contain and really close out this crisis. That's great. And that, that provides a, a really good segue to the next section of questions, where, like the transition to focusing more on finding solutions to global crises. You mentioned a lot of these organizations applying their learnings from previous experiences to to figure out ways to creatively serve their country. The COVID-19 pandemic is a global crisis of unprecedented proportions. When creating solutions or global crises, you've spoken about the importance of leaders having a, quote, global mindset, while also being able to balance that with cultural competency, which means basically that they understand their country's specific cultural context. Could you elaborate a little bit on why that's important? Yeah, I will elaborate while that's important, and I'm going to use South Korea as an example. So in our book, Leading Under Pressure, uh, one of the chapters is dedicated to global crisis. And Maria, I never thought I would live through a global crisis like this. It's one thing to study. It's another thing to live through it. And you identify the major components about how we have conceptualized and studied global crisis. And so in the book, when we outline the global mindset, the first thing people forget is as individuals, as countries, as subcultures, we're all culture beings. And what will work in South Korea, how they lead and manage a crisis may not exactly work in America or Australia or South America. And so understanding a country as a culture being and the dimensions of culture that influence crisis behavior are so different. So how people respond in a timely manner. People's need to be collective versus individualism. The advantage of being a hierarchical culture, a rule-oriented culture, or like America where we're, it's democracy and lots of freedom. See, as a leader in an organization or a country or any government organization, you have to understand how that unit is a culture being and have that global mindset to think about, given the solutions I want to design and implement, how would they intersect with culture? There's rural versus urban, as we're seeing. There's cultures across the globe. There's cultures across social economic status. There's cultures for ethnic backgrounds. The other thing that's important is that some countries have been able to understand their culture and manage it. And it's, I think some of their success has been based on learning. So you take a country such as South Korea And the reason why they were able to come up with solutions so quickly is they talk about learning from SARS, they talked about learning from MIRS and the swine flu. And they took that line. And part of learning is that a lot of learning is tacit, but they went from tacit to explicit. They codified that learning and they embedded that learning into the routines of leading their government. So when the coronavirus hit South Korea, They had a repository of knowledge that they could draw on from other viral crises. And they knew from the previous crisis that the things to do were, one, invest in technology. So have the technology to track the virus and to track individuals. To secondly, aggressively work to contain the crisis. And so they used smartphone technology so they knew who had a crisis, how to get to that person, how to track it, which neighborhoods they were going to head to. And then another big aspect of their crisis leadership is the concept that we talk about in our book chapter is they form mega communities. 
crisis such as COVID-19 cannot be resolved with just one sector. A mega community is coming together with the business sector, the nonprofit sector, and the government sector. And so the South Korea government worked with the national, basically their National Institute of Health, the World Health Organizations to develop formulas for testing. What they did is they changed four manufacturing plants overnight. So the corporate sector and those manufacturing plants started producing testing for the virus. And the government really had the knowledge from previous virus. And so they formed this mega community to contain the crisis. So right now, South Korea is kind of the the country I've been admiring from afar and reading about every day as they handle the crisis. Perfect. Part of what I'm interested in, particularly as someone who's experiencing this, is the topic of kind of like, what does the aftermath of a crisis like this look like? I recently read a report by McKinsey that framed the stages of the COVID-19 crisis management as the following, resolve, resilience, return, reimagine, and reform. And I'm most interested in the fourth stage, which argues that organizations are going to have to reimagine the quote-unquote next normal. From your perspective, do you see this crisis presenting a significant enough disruption so as to create a new normal? Maria, that is a fabulous question, and it's an understatement. The world is never going to be the same again. All of us are going to define our life before and after COVID-19. There's several industries that are definitely going to have to be reimagining. I'm going to start with the old industry that I worked at my entire life. I came to college in the 80s and never left. And so higher education is going to be a reimagining. One of my colleagues said it would have normally taken decades for higher education to get to online education the way we have what we've done in two weeks. So as we think of higher education, that's one example that's being reimagined. Will we see more hybrid? Will we see more online? What will be the value proposition for higher ed? Another example I've been thinking about is healthcare. Throughout the globe, how we provide healthcare, how we pay for healthcare, we know has been a debate, and especially here in the United States. I think with COVID-19, what we're going to have to think about is, is there going to be a call for universal health care? How do we ensure all the populations around the world have good health care? How do we equip the health care system that can mobilize quickly in the crisis? What is it going to take to make sure we have a next gen of health care workers, nurses, physicians, outlier health professions? So healthcare is going to have to be reimagined and reinformed. Retail. We were already seeing big changes in retail. How many of us were already addicted to Amazon Prime? And the death of the malls that I grew up with in the 80s and the 90s. Retail is not going to be the same anymore when you think about, is this going to expedite online shopping, or is it going to bring back, once we all can get back out again, people are going to want more experiences. What's this going to call for retail is, is that even a company like Amazon right now, other than the basics, their two-day prime is not working anymore. So thinking about supply chain, other retail companies are having to step up how they get packages to people to be survivable. So, you know, I'm a retail addict. And so the number of emails that I'm getting a day now about people who want me to engage in online shopping before, who wanted me to go in the store. So that is going to be important. And then I want to return to hospitality. And I want to think about hospitality and entertainment in the broad sense. We have a lot of Cornell alum who are senior leadership in the sports industry. 
Who would have ever thought we would see the Olympics postponed or the whole NBA season canceled? That's an industry that's going to have to be reformed. How are we going to get people back on hotels and airplanes? Again, another example of industries. And so the question I've been asking myself and Dean James and I is, what is the uh, reforming work going to look like? It's going to require strategic thinking, um, visionary, future scenario planning, the marketing, the creating customer demand, the thinking about what is going to be the next phase. You know, we had kind of the dot-com phase, and we've had this notion of the internet phase, and now we're going to have this next phase of business after COVID-19, and the world's going to be totally different, everything from education to healthcare to retail to manufacturing. So it's an exciting time. It's scary, but um, what I tell all the leaders that I work with, it's an opportunity and keep hope alive. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. And before we conclude, is there anything that you would like to cover that we haven't had a chance to discuss? You know, this is interesting, Maria, and I'd like to hear your opinion, too, of this. And preparing for this interview and updating the 25 years of research that we've been doing, we wanted to have cutting-edge research. And so I'm so glad that I had to prepare for this interview today. One of the things that has disappointed me is when you see leaders featured in the news in the last couple of weeks, I haven't seen a lot of women leaders, yet I know they're leading the crisis. And have you noticed them? Yeah, no, you're right. I think the people that are kind of at the forefront of the, at least the coverage that I'm receiving are heads of state, primarily males, and the heads of the different agencies that are kind of involved and the governors of the states that I'm more closely following, which happened to be male as well. I think I, I've seen maybe Atlanta's mayor who's female and maybe somebody from New Orleans. I tried to, in preparation for this interview, see if I could get any news hits for women CEOs who are out on the front. And no, I haven't seen that. Now, my, in my own industry, higher ed, there are a lot of female college presidents. I've been following some of them. But that was really upsetting me. So that's one of the projects I'm taking on in the next couple of weeks. And maybe I'll also give it to my daughter who loves things like this to create a database of women leaders. I have this theory that the women are doing the crisis leadership work, but we tend to hide behind the scenes. And we tend not to be, you know, media, they have to be in front of the media, but we have the expertise, the experience, the execution capability, what I call the three E's, but we're not getting the media attention. And that, that really was bothering. I didn't think it was going to be so hard to identify women to talk about today. No, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I, I honestly, I think at this point, it's kind of like experiencing this crisis as a private individual, you're kind of, I've been giving a lot of thought to how this affects me and like the anxieties that I'm experiencing and like being far away from family. And there isn't so much time to sit and think clearly and critically about what's happening. And that's a very interesting point that you bring up. Do you see a difference between Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks at the White House briefings? You know, I've been paying attention to them. I have a whole a group of friends that virtually have, and they're all Dr. Fauci fans. And what I'm seeing is it seems like Dr. Fauci gets more media attention. But when I looked at them, you know, equal to equal, what I like is they're both competent. They both demonstrate their expertise. They're able to communicate in an in-charge fashion, but show compassion. And so I, I was texting my girlfriend group the other day, and a lot of my girlfriends are physicians. I was like, look at this Dr. Bricks there. Go there. I'm glad to see her on too. And so I hope we can see her elevated more. That's great. 
Well, Dean Wooten, thank you so much again for speaking with us today. I really enjoyed our conversation and we really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me again. As students and professionals alike acclimate by necessity to learning and working remotely, many are searching for ways to stay motivated, reorient their daily routines, and maintain engagement with their work. Caitlin Woolley is an assistant professor of marketing and co-director of the Center for Behavioral Economics and Decision Research at the SC Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. Professor Woolley's primary areas of research include consumer motivation and shared consumption. She spoke this week with present value producer Alex Vorwald about goal pursuit, the impact of information avoidance, and social interactions in this new virtual age. Professor Woolley, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. As people are spending more time at home, some of us may be thinking about reinvigorating the New Year's goals that we might have abandoned a few weeks ago. And I understand your research is the psychology behind the pursuit of goals. What tips can you offer for us to either restart these goals or adjust the current goals that we have? I think that the current period is a great time for people to jumpstart goals or to even get back to goals that they had been trying to pursue before. And so I think we can maybe break these into two different parts. So if you've had strategies that worked in the past that were really successful for you, right? Maybe you would wake up early, get in a workout, you know, before school, you know, meal plan over the weekend. I think the current situation, how schedules have become a bit disrupted and we've lost a bit of structure can make it difficult to continue and follow through with those goals. And so one thing is just to, you know, if you had a good strategy that was working before, to try and recreate that as much as possible during the current situation. And so that's why sometimes you'll hear tips like wake up in the morning, shower, get dressed, right? Try and retain some sense of normalcy. And that's because structure can be really good for helping to maintain our goals and helping to maintain our habits, right? We often are driven by our situation. And so you'll see cues in the environment that will trigger certain behaviors, So if you're no longer experiencing those cues, right, you no longer have to drive to work, it might not be triggering some of the situational goals or triggers to help you follow through with your goals. And so to the extent that you can recreate those in your own home as you're working from home, as you're studying from home, will help to facilitate, you know, your goal pursuit, whether that be putting your shoes out in the morning, like the night before to try and remind yourself to work out or actually creating a schedule for yourself and scheduling exercise or scheduling meal prep time to help to follow through with goals that you've successfully pursued in the past. At the same time, I think it's a nice time to kind of take a pause and think about are there goals that you might want to be pursuing that you hadn't been pursuing before? So even maybe in January, you had set some resolutions for yourself and you've kind of let them fall by the wayside. We have a bit more time now just because you're not maybe commuting or you might not have as many meetings or activities as before to try and add in some of these healthy behaviors that you might be wanting to pursue. And so I think some of the work that I've done can help with figuring out how to actually follow through on those goals and how to jumpstart a new goal that you might be interested in. So one thing that I find in my work is that if you can make goal pursuit enjoyable, it's much more likely that you're going to actually follow through with that. So take, for instance, you have a goal that you want to cook a healthy dinner every night or you want to try and stick with this healthy meal plan. If you can find ways to make cooking enjoyable for you, whether that be playing some music in the background to accompanying your cooking, or I've seen people set up FaceTime cooking dates with friends in other cities so that you're 
having this group experience that can actually make the process more enjoyable. So for me, I don't really enjoy cooking. If I can do anything that's going to make it a bit more fun, that'll help me to follow through on any kind of goal that I have. And you can do the same thing with exercising, right? A lot of companies are actually providing free apps, free classes online so that you can try them out. And I think their goal is that, you know, after the 30 day free period, you'll actually stick with it. But a lot of these are kind of fun and entertaining and they're they're run by professionals, you know, who might be able to kind of push you into gear more so than if you were just trying to do an at-home workout by yourself. So thinking not just about the long-term goal that you're hoping to attain by pursuing these different goals, but actually thinking about in the moment, how can I make this experience fun for me, I think is a way to help to facilitate goal pursuit and, and try and get you either back on track with the goal that you were pursuing before or helping to jumpstart a new one. Yeah, I think that's very important to keep in mind, especially at this time. And you've also applied some of this to the job search process. How does that relate? Yeah, so the idea of making the experience enjoyable during goal pursuit, I think also you see similar patterns when you're applying for jobs. And it might seem a bit odd on the surface, but part of what I find is that when we're thinking about goals and setting up goals, we focus on the long-term aspect, right? The reason that you're pursuing the goal in the first place. So if you're applying for a job, that's often to get financial security. Maybe people care about advancing up the, you know, the career ladder, having financial stability. And so you're thinking about these when you're applying to jobs and you're thinking maybe about how can this job provide those benefits for me? And so when you actually go into the interview, you might be focused on these long-term aspects and thinking about telling right, the recruiter how important it is for you to advance your career, right? how, how career motivated you are. But actually what we find is that what the recruiter is looking for is someone who not only cares about those long-term goals, but also cares about some of the day-to-day goals in the moment. So do you actually find your work meaningful? Are you excited to come into work? Are you going to be a colleague that we can chat with who's going to get along with the workforce? And so the recruiters care not just about that you have these long-term motivations, but also that you're going to bring the certain energy and excitement to the job in the first place. When you're interviewing, not just focusing on these long-term reasons for having the goal, but also thinking about what are the benefits in the moment that I that I bring to the job? Is it going to be something that I'm excited about and passionate about? And can I share that during the recruitment experience to help to get the job? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And especially now that we're switching to, I guess, virtual recruitment, it's good to keep in mind. So part of your work in Goal Pursuit also deals with information avoidance and how certain people choose to avoid information that discourages what they want. With our news channel and social feeds inundated with pandemic-related information, how does this influence people's purchasing decisions? Right, so there's a ton of information coming at us right now that's full of a lot of negative emotion, right? And so people, I think, reliably so, are what you hear of panic buying. Every day it seems like there's a new risk alert out there, a new email that you're getting with information about how people are getting sick and dying from from COVID-19. Part of what I think that's influencing is that people are turning to the stores and trying to stock up to retain some sort of balance and control over the situation. And so be that, right, buying all the flour from the grocery store or buying all the rice to modify or, or mollify these negative emotions that they're having. Yeah, so uh, they're doing it from a scarcity perspective. Do you think this will stand, I guess, in the long term, or is it just a short-term application, or does it really depend how long COVID and social isolation isolation exists? 
I think that right now it's driven by a scarcity perspective. And so I don't expect that it would last once things kind of return back to normal. I think one of the things that we're seeing in the supermarket that I've noticed, right, if you go to Wegmans, you'll see that they'll say, you know, you can only have three bags of rice or, or two bags of flour. And so they're actually limiting you and rationing in the store itself, which I think can also, that information can trigger the own sort of stockpiling behavior. And so you see this have an ironic process where you're trying to prevent right shelves from becoming empty. And it's actually encouraging people to buy up more of this, this resource because they see it as something scarce that won't always be there. And there's been some work from researchers out of Kellogg and Vanderbilt who've been studying the scarcity effects and stockpiling behavior. Thinking about the, the information avoidance perspective, one of the things that you'll see is people turning off some of this information, right? So if you are overwhelmed by the negativity, you'll often see people, right, they might avoid going on, on Twitter, avoid going on Facebook to read this information. Some of the work that I've seen has even applied this to financial markets. So when people are seeing these kind of downturns in markets, they're motivated to protect their emotions. And so they won't log on to their financial accounts or their stock portfolios because they don't want to be exposed to that information. One of the questions you can think about is, is this information avoidance? It's strategic in that it's trying to protect emotion. What are the, the consequences of that, right? Is avoiding information about risks related to COVID, is that going to lead you to act in ways that might be more dangerous? Is avoiding information about the stock market could that actually be beneficial because then you're not going to panic in terms of your behavior on there, right? So I think we often think about the more information that you can collect, the better. But some of what I've been been looking at and exploring is that, you know, sometimes avoiding information can also be strategic and be beneficial. Yeah, that makes sense. Have you explored any other ideas about how policymakers can take some of this and nudge individuals towards the right behaviors and social distancing in particular? So I think my answer to that would be to think about what information you're putting out there. I think a lot of times the information that we get, it's kind of just like a, a dump, right? It's not really curated in a way that's really going to push behavior in a certain pathway. And I think some information is going to be better for behavior change than others. So information about the proportion of people who are obeying social distancing protocol or tactics that they're using that are successful for helping with social distancing to the extent that you can make it appear that most people in the country who are similar to you are that they care about this, that they're practicing social distancing. If you can get those norms across and the information that you're sharing, it's more likely to be the case that people will follow through with social distancing practices. At the same time, I think if you can get information across about how the virus is affecting people who are similar to you, that's also going to help, I think, with people uptaking some of these behavior changes. So one of the things that I've seen is that the way that you talk about the virus can have consequences for how people perceive it and how serious a threat they take it. And so if you can make it seem right like it's more of a real threat by saying that it's going to it affects people who are similar to you, then I think people, if it's kind of this amorphous thing that's not going to come to my town, right, or, or bother my family, then I don't really take it as seriously. But as soon as I see the effect that it's having on people similar to me, then because of the way that humans think and operate, then all of a sudden I'm going to take that a lot more seriously. So I think there can be ways in terms of the framing and messaging about the virus itself and about social distancing practices and behavior that could help with uptake. Yeah, that makes total sense. I really love the idea of framing it towards people that are similar to you. 
So transitioning to food consumption, which is another area of your research. In a prior conversation, you spoke about the semantics behind the word food in different languages. Can you speak to this? And what are your thoughts towards the word social distancing? Yeah, so this is a great connection. In my work, I've built, you know, I have a stream of research looking at how food can help with social interactions and help with communal bonding. And part of the inspiration for that work is research coming from sociology, which talks about the social aspect of food and food as the shared behavior. And what they look at is the linguistic qualities of the terms that we use around food. Right? So if you think about companion in French, the word is really coming from the word bread, right? And to think about breaking bread with people and having a meal with people. And this is how we talk about friendship. Or in Chinese, the word for cooking is a form of friend and bread. And so really the, the language around food and around friendship has this kind of shared component and shared structures. And I think the language that we use to talk about different words can give meaning to them. So we think about right, food as bringing people together, as coming down and, and breaking bread right, with friends and family. It's interesting that you mentioned social distancing as how are we thinking about this concept? It makes it seem something that you don't want, right? It seems kind of negative, like social distancing is the opposite of what I would want for myself. Is there a way that we could have come up with a better terminology for that that would have encaptured, right? It's not that you don't have to be social. It's just that you can't be physically near people, right? So maybe just be more aware of your surroundings, of your physical presence and your spacing with people more so than actually be distant from others. And if anything, I think during this time, people are having a shared experience. So in my work, the shared experience I study is food consumption, but you can also think about the experience that we're all having right now as a shared experience. It's actually bringing people together more than it's bringing people apart because we're all having to deal with these changes in our work environment, in our personal lives. And it's something now that we're having, having like a, a national conversation about this, right? So if anything, I think we're much more connected to others during this time, even though physically we might be separated from them. So as you mentioned, an increasing amount of social interactions are occurring virtually. How do you think your research into food consumptions applies to this virtual space? Yeah, so maybe some background on what I look at in my food research would be helpful. So I have three different papers on food and connection. One is looking at similar food consumption. So if we eat the same food, we feel closer and more trustworthy of others than if we're eating different food. This also has implications for the style in which we eat. So if you're sitting down over a family-style meal or a tapas-style meal of shared plates, it actually makes you more cooperative with other people and you're coordinating your behavior with them compared with if you're eating individual plates. And then more recently, I have work that's looking at the opposite side. So if you can't join in a meal because you have a food restriction for whatever reason, whether you have a nut allergy or you're vegan or you're observing kosher, that can actually make you feel isolated because you're not able to bond over the meal. And so I think that the current situation that we're all in, it's very unique and it's interesting because it actually offers an opportunity for people to still come together over meals, even though they're not actually physically together. So you'll see, we just had Sage Social yesterday where people were still trying to come together over these sort of meal-like events that we have in our lives, or you'll have companies hosting happy hours to try and create 4G's connections. And so we're still using food as a way to connect, even though we're physically not in the same space. And it actually could be beneficial for people who typically might not be able to share in some of these food rituals, right? If you think about someone who doesn't drink alcohol, if they get invited to a happy hour at work, they're probably not going to go. But if they're invited to a happy hour over Zoom, 
it's very easy for them to come and just have their seltzer, right? And it's not as awkward because everyone is sort of at a distance. And so I think it's a really interesting time to see how computer-mediated interaction is going to play out and how food can have a role in, in still bringing people together during this time. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And Professor Woolley, thank you again for speaking with us today. I really enjoyed our conversation and I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much. Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team. I'm your host for this episode, Paul Whitco. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomango. Special thanks to Associate Dean Drew Pascarella and the SC Johnson College of Business for assistance and support in facilitating this special episode. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.